Welcome to the Yes Vision Podcast, a project dedicated to sharing inspiration from real people combined with tools you can use to say yes to a better self. I'm your co-host, Anikit Shah. Today we have with us Benjamin Lee. He is my body worker and friend who overcame drug addiction, schizophrenia, depression, and anxiety. He walks us through his journey and shares his wisdom in pursuit of his career path and the challenges he's had along the way. Benjamin, I'm so glad we finally got the opportunity to do this. Um, do you want to maybe start off talking about your childhood, what it was like growing up, if you had any siblings? Let's see here. So my family, in hindsight, was a little odd, I guess. My childhood was a little odd in that my parents are both first generation. They're both immigrants, Korean and first generation Korean American. I have one older sister, who's about a year and a half, one grade older than me a year and a half older but yeah i didn't realize how odd it was until later on because i on a literal level can't really communicate with my parents because they don't really speak english and i don't really speak korean we're both at like three-year-old level and so i guess odd in that with my my parents i think that's probably what gave me such independent type of attitude kind of growing up because to be honest i didn't really have much in the realm of guidance um from my parents so to speak so yeah so that was interesting just total total immigrant experience you know first generation korean american just grew up in a super white neighborhood you know and just wanted to be like all the other kids around me and stuff. so i kind of rebelled against the whole you know stinky kimchi stuff like that so i understand you weren't able to get much guidance from your parents but were they supporting you at all or were you supporting yourself it's the way that they do show anything is financially money, you know, just total middle class, lower middle class, maybe. But in terms of any kind of like psycho-emotional support, man, I don't, it's definitely not inspirational, but yeah, I, I definitely, none. I can't, I, it's weird. I literally can't think of a single like warm moment with either of my parents or a single moment of like guidance or, or teaching and stuff. So yeah, there was a lot of healing to be done with, with my parents. I mean, they've legally tried to disown me, you know, kicked out many, many times, you know, for stuff like when I came back from college the first time, for example, and I was so like psyched to show them how much I'd grown and, you know, and learned and stuff. But, you know, my hair was a little bit long. I was growing out my hair and stuff. And, and so I got kicked out of the house for the two weeks I spent over the holidays because my hair was long. So I spent it at my friend's house. The year after that, it was like, uh, this is funny to remember this stuff and recount this stuff now. I didn't even make it back to the house, if I recall, from the airport on the way back in the car ride. I was wearing sunglasses. According to my dad, it was the kind of sunglasses that only bad boys wear. So he told me to take them off, you know, or 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 what? So again, I was rather disappointed that they couldn't see past these sunglasses or material things, kind of look at character, you know, of a person. And so based on principle, I refused to take them off. And so they let me off the shoulder on and make it home with my friends again at that point. So just, just to more illustrate that it was that kind of thing. From their side, I was not a very good son, certainly. I mean, I had never been able to be one to kind of fall in line and be obedient. I think that's partly why there was not a lot of guidance in the sense that I was very much a person that liked to know reasons for things and why and, you know, intent and things like that. They were very much like, the Bible says, obey your parents. That's it. No reason why, just you do it because we said. But from an early age, I kind of realized the fallibility of my 
parents, well, just people, including my parents. And so I had a hard time taking obedience at face value. I can see it from both sides. You know, I certainly wasn't a a nice obedient son that, yeah, interesting to, to think about some of that stuff now. And yeah, and I'm certain, certainly it, it's, there's implications coming to the present day that, that, you know, some of that stuff brings to bear, but yeah, interesting immigrant child of immigrants experience. So did the experience of growing up under immigrant parents influence your career path choice at all? I started off as a philosophy psych major, took like mostly philosophy classes my first couple of years. And, you know, mostly I was outdoors climbing and skiing, but I really loved it for the first couple of years. I, it was just like total brain, brain juice, you know, just like sucking it down, just like quenching a thirst for like a sense of like consciousness and like waking up to this kind of, Self. I actually remember like before I took, and that's part of why I took time off of school and realizing like I think the last paper, and I was quite a good writer at the time, in philosophy, it's a very particular kind of writing, and you know, you make a thesis statement and you do all your supporting arguments for it and stuff. And I think the last paper or what was called Who Gives a Shit Anyway, it was about, and it was kind of attacking not only the philosophy department, but the whole, you know, study of philosophy at that time in modern philosophy. Back in the day, it was really quite a utilitarian thing that kind of branched off into like, you know, medicine and ethics. And there was a lot of pragmatic aspects and stuff to it. But I think at least at, at my 18-year-old brain, 19-year-old brain at the time, you know, it was, it, it became very, yeah, like just self-indulgent you know ceiling mm-hmm. so it was a great paper i didn't write what i was supposed to but it's wonderfully well argumented paper and and that was my last thing before i was like i need some real education and that's why i decided to take time off of school and go travel because i thought that was the most useful pragmatic real education that i could have so to speak so yeah so i took a year off and i wanted to kind of take my brain out into the real world and so one way i bought a one-way ticket to london actually i you know i was at a party a house party with my dear friend Jacob and we were pissing on outside. I don't know why I remember this, but I just remember, you know, I was pissing, he came over, he was pissing next to me. We're just talking about what we're going to do and stuff. I was like, I'm taking a year off school. I want to go traveling. You know, drunk. I'm like, oh, you want to come with me? For the first, for the first couple months, we traveled together and it was just extraordinary. You know, we flew into London and he had some family up in Scotland. And basically, I mean, if you can believe this, I was there for a year on a net total of $1,700. We took out our two big expenses, which were transportation and accommodation. And just had, literally, we just took a sleeping bag, bivy sack, big old backpacking backpacks and our thumbs. So hitchhiked everywhere, slept on the side of the roads, ditches, parks, wherever we can find, just set up a bivy sack. Ended up sleeping on a lot less park benches than we thought we'd have to because everywhere we went, we met the most wonderful people who would give us rides, set us up with their, you know, their friends and their friends and put us up. And it was amazing. I'm back to school after all that. And I think I only had a couple classes to take to finish my philosophy degree. I just couldn't do it anymore. So I changed majors and I literally remember, you know, this is one turning point. It was arbitrary because I flipped a coin, but it was literally like, how do I want to gonna go through this life as far as thinking of a career and all that kind of stuff. I learned guitar. I kind of taught myself some chords and started writing songs and stuff in Europe. <clears throat> uh, so ignorant. I had no idea about anything really. But I remember, and I used to do a lot of drawing and stuff when I was a kid. So I was standing in front of the art school and I literally had a coin and I flipped it. And I was like, all right, heads, art school, tails, music school. I was so stupid. I just thought you could sign up. I didn't even know you needed to like audition or like have a portfolio or anything like that. It's just 
total ignorance. So it came up tails. And so I went to the music school and eventually got a, you know, interview with a guitar teacher. I didn't even know the difference between a classical guitar and an acoustic guitar or anything. It just it boggles my mind now. But obviously in music school, you actually have to audition. And in music school, it's classical guitar, which is a type of guitar that has a slightly different body, but the main difference is it has nylon strings versus steel strings, which is an acoustic guitar, just to, to simplify the difference. And you need fingernails to play a classical guitar. And the shape and the bevel, that's where your tone production comes, is that, those nails against those nylon strings, and it gives that kind of color and timbre and, and phrasing and that kind of, yeah, that kind of color palette that you can pull out of out of it that makes that makes that guitar sound so beautiful i had no idea mm-hmm. i just had a you know my cheap old acoustic guitar and he pretty much laughed in my face and he's like dude maybe go take a couple years of private lessons and come back and audition because you have to audition oh, okay anyway still full of piss and vinegar i go upstairs and borrow out a few guitar scores like kind of standards from the music library i borrow my friend's three-quarter size nylon string guitar just kind of lock myself up up in the attic Two weeks later, I went back to audition. He still laughed at my face. But somehow, just based on the potential and my sheer chutzpah, I got accepted into music school. So I ended up over the next three years in music school, majoring in classical guitar. And this is the first time I ever loved school. Actually, the first two years of it anyway, you know, where I just loved learning about music and theory and appreciation of music and the electives and guitar and all that stuff. So I gave my junior recital within by the end of my second year, actually, instead of my third year, sort of minored in jazz piano as one of my electives. And I learned more about music in general, the language of music from that jazz piano elective than anything else, way more than I did learning music theory, classical music theory, just in terms of just the the language of music, truly amazing. So yeah, like I said, the first two years, awesome, dedicated school, music, something happened after that second year that shit happened. Because up till that point, choosing my career path was literally like as arbitrary as you can get because I literally flipped a coin. I was just like, well, it'd be a cool way to kind of go through this life as a, as a kind of a reference. Art's cool, music's cool, came up tails, didn't even know what a classical guitar was. So that's how arbitrary it was. And I remember wishing, ah, oh, gosh, I wish I had that, that kind of sense of purpose, right? Like everybody wants that sense of like, you know, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, or this is all I want to do, just to be able to have some kind of sense of like commitment and purpose and stuff. I remember like having that as a wish. And later on, that might dovetail to got to be careful what you wish for, or at least be very specific about how you ask for it. But yeah, I remember even then I, I had that sense. So as far as music goes, it was still, it was a totally arbitrary thing for me. I loved it. I enjoy it, enjoyed being in school for, the, for those first couple of years, but it never had that sense of like implicit authenticity. It was literally a flip of a coin. I just remember like like electronic music. I was like, that's not even music. That's just a bunch of fuckers pushing buttons, you know? And like, and little judgments against like just kids having fun, like ravers and things like that. And I was also at a stage where I was a total, you know, grassroots type of hippie. Like the drugs that I did do were just the natural drugs from the earth. So the only thing I'd ever experiment with at that time, like any college kid, alcohol, you know, marijuana and mushrooms because they were all from the earth and stuff. So all of this to say there was a certain point where I got fed up with my own judgments of other people and other things. And I, maybe some of this was had to do with my philosophy background. I'll say right off the bat, I do not recommend doing this to anybody 
now, but what I did was also because at the time, whenever I heard people say, and I felt like I heard this a lot of the time as an excuse for people doing or not doing things is, I know who I am. And they refused to kind of push the boundaries of that box. I felt like it was a very limiting, limiting statement for that. And so I cut, it's planted a seed in my head of like, I want to see how far outside of that, that box I can get. And I kind of expand this kind of definition of who I am, is so to speak. So I literally wrote down everything I said I hated or detested or judged on a piece of paper. And some things on that list were like, you know, synthetic drugs, like hard drugs, electronic music, you know, raving kids just having fun, you know, promiscuous sex. Like I wasn't into casual sex and stuff. I was judgmental against all that stuff. And yeah, that was just so self-righteous and kind of sick of my own self-righteousness and judgmentalism. So I wrote all these things down, slept on it over the night. And literally the next morning I woke up and just embraced all those things on that list as my lifestyle for the next two years. So that next day I went out and bought a sampler, an eight ball of cocaine, hit on a couple girls, you know, and, and that's kind of what I did for the next couple of years. I was got really into the raving scene, being a party kid, having fun, first time, like kind of like, yeah, like casual sexual relationships, basically just, again, pushing the boundaries of like my definitions of who I thought I was. Again, I do not recommend, it might sound like a, like a interesting experiment to do. And as a 20 year old, 21 year old at the time, or no, by this time, I must have been closer to like 23, 23, 24 of, yeah, time better spent now, I think, actually getting to know who you are and cultivating like compassion and kindness and acceptance for that and pushing, pushing those edges and boundaries and self-limiting things from there versus like trying to blow the whole box wide open, which is kind of what I did. And I think I, I may have succeeded a little bit too well. This is where things start to diverge because if I recount some of these stories, I could recount them from different lenses. Like we can put on different different lenses through which to look at it, at it through, all of which are equally valid in their own context. I know that sounds kind of obtuse right now, but, but yeah, because like I said, shit, shit hit the fan. So, so that last year, I don't even remember that last year of college, to be honest, before graduation, because I was so high all the time and partying up for like five days in a row, you know, from like Thursday to Tuesday, just like, going to raves, doing ecstasy, and cocaine all night. And, and then after parties, sunrise parties, sunset parties, party parties, sunrise parties. So yeah, that last year I went from getting like average of like 3.96 those first two years in music school because I loved it so much to like getting like 0.4 that last year. I actually didn't graduate on time because I was so failing everything. So it took me a whole summer to kind of catch up. And I had built up enough like you know, for those first two years being such a good student, like I had built up enough equity, so to speak, with my teachers that they gave me some leniency. So I was able to finally, you know, get my shit together and, and get on my requirements in and graduate. But I didn't go to graduation or anything like that. I literally borrowed my roommate's cap and gown, freaking high, and took a few photos, had my friend take a few photos so I could send my mom pictures of my... Yeah. So from there, some point in there... I graduated in 99 and that summer of 99 driving out to Atlanta to visit an ex-girlfriend of mine and her family and driving my friend and dropping him off in Shreveport, Louisiana. I say this because this is the first time, I guess this would be kind of coming to the meat of some of my stuff is that this was the first psychotic episode I had or nervous breakdown or panic attack, probably all of the above. Yeah. And that was definitely a huge turning point. Probably I've never been the same since. So that's why I think like 
I literally succeeded so far in getting so far outside of myself that I literally had no, no ground to stand on. That's one perspective of looking at it. Uh, another way of looking at it is through just a purely biological and psychological biochemical perspective, which again is valid in its own kind of Western sphere. Looking at what happened to me from that point on and preceding that point through a spiritual lens is actually a really interesting and valid perspective to look at it through. Like I got so far off my path, so to speak, that spirit is kind of like, it's like, hey dude, kind of, Let's get you back on track. And if you continue to refuse to listen to it, you know, it'll kind of do something drastic in order to kind of shake you up and wake you up kind of the thing. That's a valid way of looking at it. The way I have tended to look at it in, in the most traditional and unique perspective for me is from a very somatic perspective, which is going to tie into how I didn't choose my career, so to speak, but more of my career chose me. It was much more of a choiceless choice. So for me, like I even distinctly remember driving and having a distinct memory of like how twisted I felt in these car, in this car seat. And so I don't know if this is the right time to say it, but a big part of my perspective in terms of that psychotic episode and my psychosis since then was that due to various injuries and compensations and being totally disembodied and so in my head, and not in my body, that my structure became so literally twisted. It's interesting to listen to our language, as I've told you before in our, in our sessions, that oftentimes these phrases of speech that we have are literal somatic descriptions of what people are experiencing in their bodies. So the sense of, you know, if a client comes to me and says, I just, I just don't feel grounded, or I'm just not balanced, or can't put one foot forward or weight of the world on my shoulders or like phrases of speech we have for psychotic people is you know that guy doesn't have his head on straight you know dude she is twisted like oftentimes these are literal somatic descriptions of what's happening in the body but at that time for me what happened was like because i was covering up all the messages and all the other stuff you know just going into delusion and delirium with drugs and of course that didn't help i would say that the drugs for me were more of a symptom than the cause of things. Eventually they became their own cause, but originally I think they were more symptomatic for me. This kind of, where was this need to kind of self-medicate coming from? But eventually, so yeah, so you, again, you can look at it from that perspective. Whenever drugs are involved, it's such an easy scapegoat to be like, oh, it was the drugs. And my experience were these past 20 plus years now. Yeah, I, I agree. That's a valid way of looking at it. And the spiritual is a valid way of looking at it. I've addressed it on both of those levels as well, with both some success and a lot of failure. But what ultimately led me to authenticity and my work was, yeah, that my experience with my body. And for me, that first psychotic episode was my body just reached threshold and it became so disorganized, so twisted, like literally to a degree that, and that's why I can't separate mind and body. Even to say mind-body connection, flavor of lie in there, because to say connection, we have to imply or dream up division in the first place. So I think it's a bit of limitation of language there in terms of English syntax. I is a separate thing, verb, you, world, other is a separate thing. Like our language tends to kind of separate. Yeah, the language in terms of like, yeah, it tends to kind of separate and divide and even saying mind-body connection I don't know if that makes sense, but to say connect, you know, we, our language is kind of our scaffolding for our perception of reality, right? It's like literally how we create concepts is through, through our language. It's kind of the, 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 the building stuff of, of how we perceive reality and stuff. So unfortunately, our language tends to be very divisive in nature. So again, even to say connect, we, we literally have to first dream up that everything's separate in order to connect. So I, I just want to bring that up, that there's a little flavor of, of a lie and an illusion there that we reinforce, unfortunately, with a not very conscious use of our language. 
but it's literally built into our grammar and our syntax, which I think is a big deal because if that's the way that we create our reality based on these kind of toolboxes, concepts based on our language and stuff, then that gives rise to like people feeling separate, separate from each other, separate from the world. That gives us license to treat the world like it's something and drain its resources and fuck with it and fuck with other people and all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of baked into our language and even our, our view of particulate, like view of the universe, physics and stuff. I, I can just go on tangents forever. For me, it was that, so basically what I'm getting at is I cannot conceive experientially anymore of this separation of mind and body. Like they, they literally are reflections of each other in the feedback loop just on different planes, so to speak. So for me, through that lens, what I experienced at that time was I reached a threshold where I literally became so twisted that my mind just reflected that. And so my mind became twisted, so to speak. I had no idea what was going on with me. I got to Atlanta. By that point, in Montgomery, Alabama, everything started to get really weird and surreal. By the time I got to Atlanta, everything that I put into my mouth, like this was my experience then. Everything I put into my mouth turned into sand. It was very strange. My girlfriend ended up like meeting with her. And I was already psychotic by this point. I didn't even realize it. I just was like, yeah, everything is turning into sand in my mouth. Took me to breakfast, eggs, sand, toast, sand, orange juice. Like try some orange juice, orange juice, sand. Everything literally turned into sand in my mouth, which is really quite a disconcerting and unpleasant experience. Got to her house. I, I mean, I distinctly had like a space-time continuum Star Trek rift experience where it was like, I remember waiting outside for a second and literally seeing like a terror, like a terror in the space-time continuum. Again, I remember this distinctly because it was such a specific theme. But to use Tom's baking soda toothpaste to brush my teeth, so I went up to her bathroom, brushed my teeth. My experience, again, at this time was that when I used that toothpaste and brushed my teeth, I began to foam at the mouth like a rabid dog. Like my experience was like I was literally foaming at the mouth like a rabid dog. And then all of a sudden I noticed after I rinsed my mouth out with sand that my canines were gone. I used to have sharp canines. For some reason, that was the moment that it triggered to me that I was like something was like my brain like switched. I don't know why that triggered it, but all of a sudden, like seeing that my canines were gone, which certainly happened over the previous two years of being high and grinding your teeth. I mean, that's why raver kids, when they're on ecstasy, MDMA, they have like suckers and lollipops because the tendency to grind your, grind your mouth and grind your teeth and stuff. And so you have blow pops or pacifiers and stuff like that. But at that point, for whatever reason, that was the trigger for me. And I just like, it was just like, all of a sudden shit got really weird. And I thought, I thought my teeth were disintegrating, like actively, like in that moment and things like felt soft. So her dad, and, and I haven't recounted these stories in a long time. So it's kind of interesting to, to go down memory lane. While as horrific as they are, they're actually quite humorous and entertaining at the same time in some aspects. So again, my fallible memory, what, what happened next was while I was in the bathroom, her dad came home. I'd never met this man before. And so I go downstairs and the first thing I do, you know, you meet somebody, your ex-girlfriend's dad, you're like, hello, mister, my name is Benjamin. You know, it's nice to meet you and stuff. I walk straight up to him, I grab his hand, I put it in my mouth and I have him touch my teeth. And I say, feel Mr. X, my teeth are soft. Oh my. Feel Mr. My, my teeth are soft. So <laughs> suffice it to say, I was, I was gonna, I was going to the emergency room soon after that. In the interim, I began spitting in like a Sprite bottle because logically to me it made sense because I always had this weird 
and this is way more of a backstory, but a very weird left, very specific left throat sensation and nose sensation. It's kind of weird drip and really disconcerting. That was literally like Chinese water torture that was kind of making me crazy, but this horrible sensation in the left part of my throat and a really weird kind of taste in my mouth, like my saliva, the viscosity felt different. So at the time, under my delusion and craziness, the rationale that my brain came up with was that my brain was leaking brain juice into my mouth that, and I was swallowing it like a drug and I shouldn't be swallowing this stuff that was making me crazy. So I refused to swallow it and I kept spitting in a Sprite bottle and I kept spitting in it on the way to the emergency room. And when we got to the emergency room at the hospital, I, again, my memory of it is, you know, my dramatic memory of it is like ran out of the car, went through the double doors, you know, and went to the reception area, slammed this bottle of Sprite on the counter. I was like, take this to the lab and have them analyze it. I was convinced that this viscosity that my, my brain juice was leaking that was not supposed to be leaking was like, making me crazy. I totally thought they were going to take it to the lab, analyze it and be like, oh yeah, you're so. Instead they gave me some perfect syrup, some kind of, you know, sedative type of thing, you know, and sent me back. And then I flipped even more. And this is the first, I'm, this was uh, at this point a full blown panic attack where I just experienced pure, I've never experienced at this level, you know, by that point, just this weird, pure, no content, unadulterated fear, just the pure emotion of fear and and just gone like way there like yeah it was it was really horrifying and and i think the only thing that even made me it bearable for like to even be here at the time was girlfriend literally just like just like holding my hand and just like stroking my hand you know kind of talking me through it just being at the bedside with me and you know and next to me and kind of like kind of get me back in my body and, and grounding me down yeah that wasn't a great visit um for any of us and and yeah to be honest i was never the same after that, in a sense. And because of that, it made me kind of self-medicate even harder, eventually where, you know, not only my history with mental health, but, you know, an addiction, a co-occurring mental illness addiction is definitely, you know, a huge fabric of my, like the basis of a lot of my stuff in terms of what I, you know, what I continue to go through as far as, as far as, you know, relevance to this project, I guess, in this, in this context. So, yeah. So being back in Boulder, continue to self-medicate and party for another year, even though I was just nuts, but certainly I was, I was psychomostly dependent on substance. And I realized it was a big, big problem. It became a problem. It wasn't just self-medicating anymore. The odd thing about it is, is that it probably saved my life in a way because it works as a very powerful antidepressant in the acute stage. Also the thing, the very thing that kind of filled up that hole was also boring a bigger hole, like, you know, in my soul, so to speak, over time, because it became a psycho-emotional crutch. That's when I first came back to Seattle the first time, after being away for 12 years, I think, and, and you know, tried to clean up. I think it was at this time, yeah, like 99, yeah, 2000, after that summer of 99, I was there for another, yeah, less than a year or so, nuts, partying, addict, but, after having had that psychotic break. So yeah, so I came back to Seattle, tried to clean up, clean up at my parents' home. And, and I did, so to speak, I was still nuts, but getting better in a way, you know, and I kind of redid Taekwondo. I don't know, this is, a, gets really crazy. This would be kind of a marker for, a bookmark for, to wind back into later. I'm kind of interested in telling this for my own posterity, like to kind of go through this actually, and to have this material for myself actually. But I, I went back to the Taekwondo place. I mean, I say all Asians know Kung Fu, but I actually did do Taekwondo when I was little. I got a little kid's black belt 
And I went back to the same place at this time, because I must have been 25 or so, or so at the time, 26, 27-ish. And I did it every day just as a way to like get back in my body and just like distract and just like have something to do. I got an adult black belt. But the crazy thing is in order to get your, your black belt test, you have to break a board with your fist, two boards, and with your feet. It's not going to seem like a big deal now, but it, it's going to become a huge deal later. But basically, when I did that with my right hand, the board broke back. So I kind of busted up my right hand, didn't break the boards, tried it with my left. That wasn't a success. I should have stopped there. But even with my busted up hand, I was like, screw it. I'm going to give it a woman try. Just went full force with her right hand, busted up my hand pretty good, got my black belt, pride, all that kind of stuff. Didn't take care of my hand, didn't get x-rays, nothing. You can even still see to this day that like when I try to straighten out this hand, you can see it's all level, kind of normal. This is what happens with my right hand. You can see my finger like this, and this knuckle is yeah. set up in huge, which really distorts the articulation of my right wrist, right elbow, all the way up into my cervical, dorsal, neck, head, all kinds of stuff. So, and I'll recount some of the injuries and stuff that I had before, which ultimately ties into what I do now and what I do with you. So bookmark that. I really busted up right hand, didn't think of it. I was starting to come in the clear. That same friend that I traveled with those first couple months in Europe, he was living in New York at the time with his wife. And he, they had invited me out a few times and kind of kept getting me to go and live with them in Central Valley in New York. So at this point, I was like, fuck it. Why not? And I told my electric guitar at this point to save up to get some body work. I had read about rolfing. I remember in a paper in Colorado at some point, and that was a seed. And then my friend Jake had told me that he went through the series and he had a guy out there. So that was partly why. So I went out to live with them in Central Valley, which is a couple hours north of New York City of Manhattan. Beautiful acreage. It was kind of ironic because it was on the property of this crazy old, like classic cliche, stereotypical mental institution um, on this big old property. And, but anyway, I, I went out there sort of clear headed. And this was my first experience with other than a couple of relaxation massages, you know, at certain times, this is my first real experience with body work in rolfing or structural integration, which is, which is called the, the series. It's an actual like prescribed series of 10 sessions, 10, 11, 12 sessions that you do. And um, I use that money that I, that, I, that I got from selling my, my custom electric guitar, hollow body Telecaster style, it's a very beautiful guitar. I started going through the series. And this was the first time that all of a sudden I had body awareness after like the first four sessions. Again, due to all my mental jerking off and being so in my head and mind over matter, you know, and just like that old adage of like, you know, just like, you know, just toughing through it or, you know, total mind over matter, you know, just totally like willpower, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, totally disembodied, not connected, treating the body like a machine, like totally separate thing. You have the mind, you have the body, total Cartesian duality, you know, back in the day, the deal that Descartes made with the church, you know, you take the body, you know, I get the soul, you know, and just like, just that horrible Cartesian duality that we've adhered to ever since then, I embody that or disembodied that so to speak so all of a sudden you know and also just culturally too i don't know if stereotypically anyway i won't get into that after like four sessions i realized and like sitting there playing guitar how fucking twisted i was again like literally twisted like total torsion like if i relaxed my relaxate if i didn't hold my breath and like try to hold myself straight i would like literally be twisted and that would be my default relaxation state and then this also made reminded me like I had so many little hindsight things, crazy hindsight things where I would remember, like I, I would remember practicing guitar, classical guitar. This is going to seem so nonlinear. I'm going to go through some of my major injuries because a lot of this had to do with compensating from those injuries and not being aware of the body. 
and this is a lot of stuff that I preach to you and, and my other clients and, and why I'm such a stickler for wholeness and interrelationships instead of isolating parts, both on a microcosmic and a macrocosmic level. My sophomore year, I was in the bedroom on a cinder block, glass of wine on my head, fell off the cinder block. I wish I could say it was in the bedroom doing something more exciting than that, but I was just standing on a cinder block with a glass of wine. I fell. I thought my arm was in front of me. I was prone, which means face down. I thought my arm was in front of me. I was concerned about the wine on the floor. When I looked up where I expected to see my hand in front of my face, it was completely the other way. Right? So I completely dislocated my left elbow. There's nothing there. Again, oh. I made this weird barbaric yelp, a sound that I couldn't recreate if I tried. My roommates <coughs> thought I was fucking around. Didn't come for like a few minutes. Like both a death row and a pterodactyl mating call. Mm -hmm. And then it was, it was very traumatic because like it was late at night. And I think with dislocations, like time matters. Like how fast you can get it relocated. Well, here I am with absolutely nothing here, just nothing but a wobble. And I'm in the car in the back seat. I think this is where it started because I think I even told you, and this mm -hmm. also happens when I'm getting rolfed, is that when I'm under very intense sensation, for some reason I get very patriotic and I sing America songs. Like going through the rolfing series, like the most intense parts, I'd be like, I'm mm -hmm. in the back of the car and we're going, they're trying to take me to an emergency room. We don't know. They don't know where they're going. I'm holding my hand, going over bumps. My elbow's literally, there's nothing here. There's no joint. There. The first hospital they take me to is the wrong one. I'm barefoot. I totally like cut up my bottom of my feet on glass walking to this emergency room. They're like, you can't come here. This is not the right emergency room. They don't even let us in. I'm sitting here singing songs about America with bleeding on the ground with my cut up feet and just a wobbly limp noodle for an arm. So we have to go back in the car. Now I'm all bloodied up, but, but America different emergency room mm -hmm. and finally you know i get in there and obviously i'm just like total in shock and traumatized my by this point my roommates obviously are sick of hearing america songs but finally they relocate my my elbow and you know and then painkillers and blah 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 and all that kind of stuff so i'm out of commit so i you know i'm in a cast for not a cast but a sling for for quite a while and this is at a time when i had no idea what a body was or being embodied or you know, just treating the body like a piece of machinery and not being very good about my, I mean, I did my rehab and my physical therapy and stuff, but I certainly had no awareness in terms of like interrelationships and alignments and stuff, which is in hindsight, partly how I realized like oftentimes it's not the original injury that even becomes a problem, but, but the kind of cemented neurological kind of protective guarding mechanism that becomes cemented into the nervous system after the injury over time, if not enough awareness and embodiment and alignment um, is brought to that kind of rehab process. And the proprioceptive distortion, proprioception is kind of our sense of self and space. We have receptors in our body that kind of give us our sense of physical space, and how we occupy. And I might get into this more later because it's very, very apropos in terms of the overall discussion of, of how we have posture and movement and things like that. But I had a total distortion of that. Over years, just compensating I think for that was a big part of it. Later on, when I got back from that European trip, this must have been a couple years later, I was playing basketball, was going for a 360 slam dunk over this big dude. Kidding about the slam dunk, but I did do a layup. Pick up, came down on his foot, completely destroyed my left ankle. Destroyed it. Legs just shreds. Just classic on top of somebody's foot, just super roll. Now I'm realizing that probably I was predisposed to that particular weakness there 
because of the compensation and patterns that I had already done in terms of protecting this elbow and, and, and using my bodies in ways to like not engage my elbow and distorting my body and distorting the way that I stood on my feet even at the time, which probably um, inclined towards easier injury at the time, which is an interesting thing. So those were a couple of the big kind of mechanical injuries I had. Later on, when I had to get a psyche valve, one of my psych people thought it may have had something to do with a major concussion that I had, a ski accident that I had. This must have been the first or second year as well, where I was following the one of my friends, super racery guy from the East Coast. It was funny to see the different styles from East Coast skiers and West Coast skiers meet, meet in Colorado. Total tangent. I was cruising, he was cruising. I was going right, you know, right behind him, really, really fast, probably 40, 50 miles an hour, no exaggeration. Went off his little lip, saw him kind of, whoa, whoa, so I tried to avoid him. And basically what happened was I landed in some kind of wet, slushy, and not snow, it was just a thin cover. And basically I slingshotted out of my skis, right forward, like literally it whipped and then went head first into what looked like snow, but was very thin cover snow over granite. So my head just like whipped right into granite and just skidded across. I thought I was dead. I have a very hard head, I guess, because I didn't even pass out. I don't remember passing, but I do remember looking up and like there was like blood dripping all over and we're near the bottom. It was kind of like a movie where things are kind of fading in and out and you see all these people like pointing like, like near the lift line and stuff. And so I had to get toboggan out of there, actually. The first and only time I ever had to get toboggan out of a, a ski area, they were very concerned. So major head trauma, basically like pain at the front of my prefrontal cortex, you know, to the inside of my skull. Still have a scar there where my hair won't grow. Grow. So, and it's a very distinct bump and stuff that you can feel even after all these years. Another one. And then combined with that right hand thing. So now here we are in New York. That's the backstories of my major injuries and not having any idea of having a body. Like I didn't even realize I had a body for the first quarter century of my life. I might as well have been a brain in a vat. And after that fourth session of rolfing, I was like, whoa, I'm fucking so twisted up. And then having the memory, because it was while I was playing guitar, like I had this memory of like, huh. Like I would remember practicing guitar and in music school, you want to practice at least like five hours a day, they say, like kind of minimum. So for five hours a day, I'm in this kind of twisted position, classical guitar, one foot up with this kind of wonky left arm, wonky left ankle on that footstool, twisted in this position. And I used to remember very consciously trying to relax. And it always felt like, again, this is before I even knew I had a body. The way I experienced it at the time was I felt like the messages that I was giving my left fingers on the fretboard, if like... I was giving it a hundred percent message, but like only, it felt like only 60% of the messaging was getting through. Like my left hand didn't quite fully listen to me. It was, there was like something missing in the transmission, like huge packets and bytes of information would kind of get lost from here to here. And I remember like a lot of it's about like breathing, being able to breathe and relax while you're playing. But I couldn't because if I didn't hold my breath and hold tension, I would literally fall off the chair. Like I distinctly remember this, like, and again, I didn't realize at the time that I was so distorted in body, but I do remember like I, I couldn't completely relax because if I did, I would like me trying to hold myself in, a, in this position of classical guitar, I'm doing this for five hours a day, kind of forcing this tension. But if I actually relaxed into it, I would literally like slump off the chair because I was that like disorganized. So also like holding tension and holding my body in this kind of position for a lot of hours a day for a couple of years, few years. And, and so as a backstory, that's interesting to kind of think about from the perspective of like getting more and more kind of confused and what led me to even that experiment 
of like writing all that shit down and you know the things that i said i hated like what caused me to have certain kind of discontent and kind of a disease of the mind so to speak and then the desire to kind of change things up and, and self-medicate so this i I'd say all this is is a hindsight backstory because even that before any injuries happened may have predisposed me to why i freaking dislocated my left elbow just by falling off a cinder block because i already had some baked in kind of distortions it's the way we learn movement by imitating our parents or what we see around us. And injuries can happen just as surely from the inside, stresses and strains from psycho-emotional things that tug on our muscles and our bones and tendons, just as any external accident, car accident or, or external injury can, can distort those structures as well. So yeah, so it was interesting to have these kind of flashbacks and think, oh man, I just like, like I couldn't even like breathe like while I was practicing guitar and I would just hold myself in tension for five hours a day and messaging wasn't getting through. So I already had this sense of disconnect and disembodiment in my hand, in my, in my arm. And I think, you know, that how we feel and the sensations we have in our body does have a huge kind of psycho-emotional impact on, on our lives. And I think that's why the, the slang we use in phrases of speech are oftentimes both somatic experiences that are also phrases of speech for kind of our psycho-emotional tonus of our, you know, of what we're experiencing, that sense of being imbalanced or, or twisted or don't have your head on straight or your head in the clouds or can't put one foot forward, all those kind of things. Interesting. So four months into the rolfing, back in New York, I'm realizing how twisted I was. I think that that's a big reason why I was crazy, right? But I was still normal crazy. And I'll explain what I mean by that normal crazy. Because I did get off my path. I was twisted. I did go crazy. I had an episode, but I was kind of getting back. So it's like, imagine like a Laffy Taffy or something. And let's say, let's say I was twisted. So, okay, here I am twisted and that's fine. And I'm realizing this all of a sudden. But again, I had no idea what I was doing or anything about bodies. And I still perceived this separation of mind and body and treating the body like a machine or like a piece of meat that you can just mold. So still feeling being full of piss and vinegar, albeit a little bit less, but still youthful enough. Because one thing that I was good at when I was young is if I did put my mind to something, generally I succeeded at it. Like if I went full bore for it. So then all of a sudden I decided, oh, a big part of my problem is why I'm so nuts is because I'm so twisted. Once I just get my machine body aligned and straight up and deal with my injuries now that i realize i have a body oh my gosh i'm gonna sprout butterfly wings and be awesome mm -hmm. and by this point i was doing a lot of songwriting i even had a freaking manager at the time and you know and i would go into work with my friends just to just to be producing and working on on tracks and on songs and stuff and and i was this was a very exciting time because i was like this is the first time i kind of had hope and a reason for why shit went down the way it did and i was thinking man i'm just so i went gung-ho for like getting my body, getting my head on straight, getting my body aligned up and on the right path. So what I did was I literally, and what I tell all my clients not to do now, was I literally tried to force my body into alignment like overnight. I did some weird ass shit to myself. This is where I, I think I may have, and partly this feeds into uh, other stuff for me because it's such an isolating experience because I don't know anybody else that's quite done it like this. I have tried to do a lot of research and I've actually termed the coin, at least for myself, somatopsychosis you know we hear psychosomatic diseases a lot but to kind of flip it around what i call somatopsychosis where the body becomes so disorganized that then the mind reflects that and so basically what i did was like oh man i had the left elbow injury i had that left ankle injury i feel so twisted so i would do shit like i would go to the high school track literally all night long for like eight hours no joke no exaggeration 
and I would pretend that my right ankle was injured and I would try to uncompensate or decompensate that way. That, that was my solution for balancing myself out. I would run, mm-hmm. jump, blah, 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 in order to kind of try to balance myself out. I would do things like get my arm, like twist it, get my arm to feel the way I thought it should feel and tie it to a post and just hang out there for like four hours, you know, literally trying to mold my body. Again, just treating it like a machine, not realizing that it's connected to a nervous system, a brain, just total separation. Right? I would, oh man, just the crazy experiences. Yeah, just like cranking, forcing. Uh, I think of like, oh, like my left sits bones, I wanted it to, to actually touch because I realized when I was sitting that only my right sits bone did. And so I forced my left sits bone to do it. And I would twist my leg in crazy ways to try to find alignment through that left ankle, through my body, just crank on things. Yeah, other back surgeries when I was in Cleveland, I felt like this tear in my side. Maybe it's like this rubber band came loose, so to speak, in my body. And wow. I did so many weird things. But one of the crazy experiences I had was when I was in Manhattan. And I thought I was making progress, like each step forward I thought I was taking. But in reality, I was taking two steps back. Because what, in hindsight, what I realized is each time I would have local success, local meaning like in my left shoulder, in my elbow, in my ankle, what I thought that I was lining stuff up, I was actually taking two steps back or even three or four and just confusing the shit out of stuff more because I was trying to organize a system from within the system that created the disorganization in the first place. Einstein's lovely, lovely saying, it's very difficult to solve a problem. From within, the, from within the system that created the problem in the first place. And again, being totally ignorant and not knowing about bodies and just cranking on shit, not breathing, holding stuff, thinking that if I just hold it this way, it's just going to be like that forever then. So instead of actually untwisting that original twist, which would have been with respect to the nervous system, going like that, I would not twist it from the right place and instead create counter rotations and then counter rotations within there and then counter rotations because I didn't do it with respect to everything else. Right. And so from within here, and I'll take this and instead make a little hyper node here and then a little hyper node here and a hyper node here. There was no sense of continuity anymore. So I literally just completely disorganized, like tore, tore my body apart from the inside out. So I would have local success, get my shoulder to feel the way I thought it was supposed to feel, totally irrespective of the whole system. So local success at the expense of the global ecology, right? Orphan or disown certain parts, like isolate. Parts. Oh, that's so nice. It felt great. But the reason it was three steps back was because in order to get this locally to feel the way I thought it was supposed to feel, I was literally had to kind of tear it apart from the overall system or distort its relationship to the overall system as a whole. So as I went through this process, again, I had some hope because I thought I was doing good shit, but I was literally, it's like a, it's like somebody not having any idea what they're doing with cars and just like taking it apart right? Thinking they're going to put it back together, not even knowing what a carburetor is or a spark plug or which I don't or anything like that. And even more than that, like actually taking the body of the chassis and like twisting the metal, like running it through a freaking compactor and all this kind of stuff. I did really unique things, I think, to my body in, in ways that's very disturbing to, to think about. But an, an interesting thing in terms of the mind-body stuff, it still fascinates me to this day, was because of that kind of loose rubber band feeling I had in my side. I started to get this really bad left SI pain because as I was portioning and tensing my body in ways and disorganizing it, all these new pains and new things kind of popped up. But this rubber band feeling, I remember if I just took my hand and flipped under my rib and held it, all of a sudden, like the, the fog that I was starting to accumulate in my brain, like lifted. So when I felt connected here, it was almost instantaneous. My mind would literally clear up and it, it, it was wild, like to have that 
kind of direct experience of this kind of mind-body connection connection and my mind just reflected literally that fragmentation that like shattered mirror and just mass confusion and that's when shit really hit the fan when i really became psychotic so to speak um not in a momentary panic but crazy downward spiral i really yeah like i was full-blown nuts and that's why i call it somatopsychosis is because my structure and became so disorganized that yeah, that my mind literally just reflected that that confusion, that disorganization. So I find it personally fascinating to think, not to, it's never a one-way street. It's never a causal, like, you know, oh, you get your body lined up and your mind's going to be fine. It's always a feedback loop. But I am interested in how much our biomechanics and kind of proprioceptive rehabilitation can be a resource and a support for psycho-emotional health as well, uh, and vice versa, and how they can be mutually supportive and synergistic versus an either or type of a thing anyway you can get more to that later but yeah i went nuts to the degree where i couldn't be be in new york anymore you know i got shipped off to the cleveland clinic where my uncle's a neurosurgeon and uh, saw a psych there and i got diagnosed at that time schizophrenia psychosis anxiety depression they put me full of medications zyprexa risperdal clonazepam and wellbutrin paxil different ssris so a cocktail of drugs for again schizophrenia psychosis anxiety and depression which you know was always in the background even growing up i remember this would bring back memories of even when i was younger i would wake up some days and i would call them my unreality days where when I would wake up really surreal and it just felt like like I was in an underwater movie or, or something and I would call them my unreality days they were very uncomfortable and disconcerting I really didn't like them so kind of a derealization de depersonalization kind of experience that kind of harkened back then and again which made me want to self-medicate on stuff because I really hated those days so I had I had a history for sure and that's why I call it crazy crazy because I was normally crazy before and then the normal compensation stuff but what I added onto it when I tried to fix myself and what I, the violence that I did to myself and the extra forceful and unique creative ways I did to myself, tearing myself apart from the inside out and just totally tying myself up in knots and cutting myself up into interdimensional jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, it's a, that was a different level for sure. And so I, I decided to treat it through the Western lens and went on all these drugs and didn't help biochemically. And they didn't want to hear about my body. You know, when I would try to explain to them, you know, I just remember being so, because I felt so confused internally, I remember just being jealous of like anybody walking down the street that, oh, this person's screen, they're just walking. But for me, every step was excruciating because every step I took, I felt all this mass confusion in my body and this kind of somatic confusion. But the doctors didn't want to hear about that. And so, you know, they just diagnosed me with all this stuff and gave me a bunch of medications. The side effect of which I had a lot of appetite. So I would like hoard Oreos and, and, and eventually I was real, it turned me into a zombie and, and an Oreo hoarding uh, monster. And I was still doing crazy shit to myself, trying to put myself into alignment and just like dragging myself across the floor, trying to find this like sensory alignment and stuff. And again, just continuing to do more damage to myself. But you know, doctors didn't want to hear about that stuff. So eventually I was like, things weren't going well on that route. So I kind of had to burn some bridges and escape, so to speak, to get myself off all those drugs. And, but in order to be okay, I had to self-medicate on my own like kind of antidepressant of choice and abdicate my that emotional regulation to that instead of like better coping mechanisms and stuff but in a way again like i said it kind of saved my life which although later definitely became a huge crutch but from there 
I eventually went back to Colorado in Boulder and shit extra hit the fan there. I would say for the next four years, I was a not functional human being. I was in and out of ER rooms and I was institutionalized a couple times against my will on the pretext that I was a danger to myself. And like one time I thought I was going to talk about what's called the Colorado Indigenous Care Program, which is like financial assistance. And I was just being honest about my experience and intake person then wouldn't let me go. And I was straight out of a movie, like these four giant guys came and like dragged me off into the fucking like institution and force fed me some medications and stuff. And, and yeah, just horrible memories. I remember being like tied down to it, you know, gurney once and like, you know, in straps and, and yeah, that was an unpleasant time. The, the one, again, humorous piece of hope that I had was, because I was done, I was finished as a human being. I had the brilliant idea because, you know, it was constantly I had suicidal ideation, I was like fantasized about it. And, but at that time, I still had a kind of base religious fear. I, was, I grew up in the Judeo-Christian like tradition, although I lost Jesus in college. I, you can't be a philosophy major and, and still believe in, believe in that stuff in that way. But I still had the background that life was the, the, that the sanctity of life and like the only one sin you can't take back is offing yourself, right? So I remember in Colorado, I, I literally kept reading the book of Job like over and over and over again while like banging my head against the wall. And, um, and yeah, four years. Oh, so I thought I came up with this awesome solution. I actually made an appointment with a, a neurosurgeon and I felt actually hopeful because I thought, what a great idea. I won't kill myself, but I, but I can end my suffering. And so I went in, I gave a very rational reason. Basically, I asked for a lobotomy. Like, lobotomy was like, make me a vegetable, and at least I'm not killing myself, you know. And I thought it was a perfectly rational solution for me at the time. This is just to illustrate, like, internally I was done. I was, I was finished as a human being. And yeah, and I was like four years in and out of, of that, and, you know, little spots and, and starts here and there. I won't go into so much detail there because there's a lot but but yeah I was full bore until about 2004 I was in New York during 9-11 too my, my friend thinks that that had some stuff to do with it I, I don't know that was definitely in the background though so but I left from New York to Cleveland and then to Boulder back from so basically I was there from like 2001 to, to 2004 I came back to Seattle when I thought I was at least not crazy enough to a degree that I wouldn't totally freak out my parents. Because of my, my non-relationship with my parents, they never really knew what I was going through. In fact, I used my dad to get out of one of the institutions at one point because they're the only ones that could. They had no idea what was going on with me. They don't even know what mental health, blah, blah, blah. You know, they just willful ignorance and oblivion. So I used that actually. And I was like, I have no history. Call my dad, you know, like ask him. Cause I knew what he would say. And they called him and they, and they said, blah, 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 your son, you're, you know, and he's just like, Oh, my son, he's fine. He, no, no problem, anything. And, you know, so they had to leave. So I totally, yeah. So they had no idea and they've never really known or understand. So unfortunately I haven't ever had a support system there around that stuff because of the nature of my crazy. Also, it felt extra isolating because for me, it was so somatically based and it was so this kind of internal like twisting up of myself as well as the particular addiction that I had which was very isolating because that was rather esoteric as well so the isolation thing was definitely a contributing factor as well I'm realizing more and more now but anyway to Seattle with the idea that at least I can try to finish recovering here in 2004 and that's that was my this is where we're getting to the 
career change part where where I kind of got the wish that I wished for before from the universe in again a horrendous horrible way that I would never wish on anybody and and how I got into body work which is what I do with you and other people now and which is why it's so authentic and I think has that power of authenticity behind it Oh yeah. So now we're getting into the career part. So I did consciously try to take stock of, okay, I have this really unique experience and this really direct experience of this mind body connection thing. And in order to have some kind of redemption value of it, like how can I use that in a way? But before that, because I was adrift at sea, you know, and I had no direction. So I very consciously decided to trying to take stock of my actual values. Like what do I actually value? And what are some of my, my principles to try to get some kind of a compass, internal compass going. And seems silly, but even things like when I would watch like movies or TV shows, like I would try to pay attention to what I responded to, you know? Like I really like kindness. Kindness actually turns me on. It's really fucking cool, you know? Before I might've thought, oh, it's kind of sappy. I mean, it's horrible. I, I remember, again, back in those college days, and again, seeing how far outside of myself, I can get it's just like now I have to have compassion for myself in those times but I used to remember praying to God to make me more of an asshole you know you know it's the whole nice guys finish last kind of a thing you know and like I wish I could have been like that those frat guys over there just like and I'm sure nice guys out there can relate to to that sentiment but yeah to bring it back around to this time in, in 2004 in seattle I was, i'm just like you know what i legitimately i like kindness like it just turns me on like i think it's badass i think compassion is badass and also you know what came up for me a lot i i tried to kind of you know i had three heroes i could try to pick like three heroes at the time for me right now not to say they're not not fallible but what i resonated with with each of them um, at the time, my three heroes were very interesting, actually. I think about it. It was Joan of Arc, Albert Einstein, and Bobby Kennedy. And I think, you know, and my perception of Bobby Kennedy, I, I, by no means do I think, you know, he was some saint. I mean, he did a lot of dickhead moves, if you look at it historically. But in his presidential run, you know, in my perceptual filter of what I saw was a genuine public servant. That what I resonated with. Like, I think he knew he was going to get shot or killed. He, he knew, but what I saw in his eyes when he went out and actually like held hands with people and looked in, in his eyes was to me what a genuine public servant is ideally is not somebody that's serving themselves, not hungry for power. Somebody that ideally a good public servant to me is somebody that doesn't even want to do it. Like some, only people in power should be people that don't want power. That genuinely wanted to, and that's what I saw in him at the time was he saw some bullshit out there and he genuinely felt it and he genuinely wanted to help and genuinely wanted to serve. I think he probably knew he was going to get knocked off and he did it anyway. So this was my fantasy about Bobby that I responded to. So that sense of selflessness and that sense of service and that having that kind of servant's heart. And that's exactly a big part of why I re resonated with Joan of Arc's story. I think there's a really cool book about Joan of Arc by Mark Twain, actually if I remember correctly, that's a, a lovely read. Obviously not totally historical, but, but again, what I resonated about Joan of Arc was just that utter sense of selflessness, just total surrender to God's will. Again, even though I'm not religious, that kind of tugged on me and my heart in, in a resonant way is just that abdication of self just to serve, like to, to surrender and just to, to serve God's glory, so to speak, and thy will be done type of thing resonated with me. And then Albert, you know, smartest guy on earth, genius. It wasn't that, 
that I respected. It was with that as a backstory, how much humility and humor and wisdom he had. You know, to me, there's a very three distinct distinctions between smart and intelligence and wisdom. They're all three very, very different things. Smartness, I almost think of as derogatory now. Just knowing that cleverness without any, that actually can be a dangerous thing to have without being tempered by wisdom, right? Right. That's why my experience, you know, because I had no wisdom. It was just stroking off in my cleverness, you know, and that can be weaponized as many people do weaponize it and often weaponize it in service of ego, right? Building themselves up and tearing others down as a false way of building oneself up by putting other people down relative to it. So smartness, I think, and even intelligence, you know, without heart and wisdom can, can actually be weaponized and, and used as, as tools to, to, to tear down both oneself and other people. So that's why I make those, I think, that are very important to me. And wisdom, you know, discerning wisdom is, is certainly something that, that is developed over time, I think, with practice and noticing and awareness. Mindfulness practices are very, very good for those things. And you can certainly have wisdom without knowing a bunch of facts, you know, and knowing knowledge, you know. And even there, there's a distinction between knowledge and knowing. Again, knowledge can be very dangerous and used for, you know, cleverness, tactics and stuff. But knowing can be, you know, an indicator of, of authenticity in a way that's unsubstitutable. And there, there's a, yeah, there's a uncontrivable authenticity in that, I think. So, so yeah, those are, I think those are useful distinctions to me. So Einstein for me was, he was, he had all of it. He was fucking smart, real, and, and he had the wisdom, right? And it wasn't, he had more of a reason to be egotistical like a lot of his other peers were thinking they knew shit, but he was the consensus smartest of them all, but he also had the wisdom to be, have humility, you know? And I think that is a sign of wisdom is actually humility. If you don't have humility, if intelligent person doesn't have humility, that there's no wisdom there. That is, that is a, that is a self-serving, ego-building, narcissistic, self-referential, self-righteous person put down other people as high. I find humility to be a high indicator of, of wisdom. And he had humor, you know, and there's a lot of great quotes from, from Einstein, you know, just about the whole imagination being more important than, you know, even knowledge and all that kind of stuff. You know, he's just, just, just that, that humility, that wisdom, while being the smartest guy in the history of humankind, you know. So, so he was my other, other hero, I think mostly because of the humility against that backdrop of being the smartest guy. So in taking stock of those values that I had, <clears throat> which was really ultimately came down to service, kindness, passion, and somehow being able to use this fuckity fucked up experience of, yeah, that's a highly technical term, fuckity fucked up. But yeah, those, those things made me think, what can I, how can I utilize those, serve those, those values, those principles that I'm kind of realizing for myself and again, it was trying not to contrive it, you know, or be pretentious about it, but genuinely listening. And I found it really useful to get those clues of what I resonated with by noticing how I responded to certain characters on TV, movies, what I read, you know, what, what were my cells responding to? So with this weird ass experience and with those values in hand, I kind of found my way towards thinking about body work obviously. And I actually got, and I actually researched as much as I could to see if anybody had any experiences close to me. I couldn't find it. That's why I've always wanted to write a book, even on somatopsychosis and its implications, not only in the physical and performance world, but even in the 
psycho-emotional world and even in mental institutions, not to say that it would be a one-way street and a cure for crazy people, but how, how the body, again, can, if instead of draining both energy and sapping resources in psycho-emotional buoys, if you can reverse that process and when the body becomes aligned, it can actually be a wellspring of support and resources and help to buoy and make onward leading psycho-emotional and behavioral changes that people want to make. It's an interesting question to me, you know, it's like you literally, you know, cause there's, there's an actual physical structural, like physiology, like physicalness to emotions, right? It's in our face. Like it's really difficult to slunch your shoulders, frown and be like, I'm so happy. Yeah. Great. It's obvious. I mean, smiling. That's why people feel better when they actually smile, even though it's not a genuine smile. There's a, there's a, there's a neural connection between our physical body and our kind of emotional, psycho-emotional state. You know? Again, it's, it's much more complex than that, but it, there's a total feedback loop going. So, so yeah, I've always found it fascinating to eventually be able to take some of this work into the, obviously because of my experience, ultimately into even the mental health field and see how much that that can contribute to being a supportive factor for behavioral change and mental and mental health, like a part of the mental health plan, so to speak. But again, more tangent. I was doing research. I was trying to find any kind of resources and help and support for me. And I mean, everybody kind of thinks their experience is unique and but then they realized that it's not. And a lot of people, you know, usually support in peer groups out there. If you do a little research in my particular case, at least I couldn't find anybody else that did shit to themselves where they tore themselves apart from the inside out and literally yeah. made themselves crazy on a structural level that reflected psycho-emotionally. So again, that, that kind of isolation was, was interesting. I researched and researched, I couldn't find anything, even with the power of Google, which is again, why I kind of wanted, that's how I got on that tangent of wanting to kind of bring that kind of idea of somatopsychosis and possible implications of, of even biomechanical health and biomechanical medicine into even like psycho-emotional and behavioral health and stuff like that. So, so when I did get into, when I couldn't find anything or any kind of peer support, anything around that, I did start looking for practitioners because I was, it was so somatically based for me in terms of being able to help me. And one of the best people I found was a reflexologist, actually. And so even from there, when I started to think, oh, I will investigate the body worker field. And I decided I literally wanted to start from the ground up. So with reflexology, it's basically you have a map. It's a microcosm, the macrocosm thing, like a holographic imprint of the whole body on your feet, on your foot. And there's ear reflexology, like the whole map of the, the body on the ear and, you know, different, you know, hand reflexology. And I think in Korean reflexology, the entire body is mapped onto like along the index finger. There's other kinds like iridology, for example, is basically reflexology of the eye. You have a map of the whole human body and the irises of the, the eye. All kinds of, personally, I believe that believe in a holographic principle of the body that the information of any one part contains within it the information of the whole. The feet are just a particularly useful and easy way of seeing that because gravity flows through the body, prints on the feet, and it's a really easy place to both access information as well as input information into the whole system, both on a reflexology level, which is kind of using the map of the body on the feet to stimulate certain reflex points as well as biomechanically inputting because again that's your base of support and how gravity is flowing through and touching the earth and moving through this world and stuff so so i decided i want to start from the, the ground up i literally started in reflexology certification first 
and and eventually found my way to one of the more the most and this is was the opinion of a lot of people that have gone through this program to the Brian Udding School of Massage, which I think as people fondly have said that it's like a life school disguised as a massage school, an authentic educational experiences. And Brian Udding is a master of, 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 of curriculum. Like he says, a concentric learning, learning style that's not like, you know, reductive in like what we're used to in school of like one teacher per subject. You have subjects you know, that are lined up in a linear fashion was at Brown Onion School was, and he was constantly tinkering. Every semester was different, but like if you're learning the anatomy and physiology of the foot, for example, you might do an anatomy class on Monday and you actually do massage techniques of the foot on Tuesday and you actually learn pathologies of the foot on Wednesday and you actually, you know, go do a different massage technique of the ankle on the foot on Thursday and reinforce the, the physiology and anatomy and the, and the kinesiology, you know, on Friday, that kind of thing. So it was a concentric inter mutual, like supportive learning environment in that way. And it was just a, a 16 month program, thousand hour program, extraordinary program included five day cadaver labs, you know, the genius of Brian, you know, when we're doing the hydrotherapy portion, of the curriculum, you know, we go down to Brighton Bush for a whole weekend and actually do hydrotherapy immersions while learning about the, the theory and practice of it, you know, shit like that, truly extraordinary. Basically, I started to then layer on an academic understanding, finally, of the body with this very interesting direct experiential insight I have to the body. And by this point, I was literally just trying to put myself back together piece by piece. Oh, and I should say that in Colorado, I was introduced to a book and a therapy that was hugely influential on me to a degree called the Feldenkrais method, which is neuromuscular re-education. It's not body work. There's no actual, well, there is a, a table functional integration element to it, but it's really about a big component of it's called awareness through movement. So how to develop body awareness through like subtle motions, like noticing and feeling and reprogramming the mind, controlling the body, the brain, actually controlling the body, so to speak, from our habituated compensatory like movement patterns into re-educating it into kind of more optimal patterns and stuff. It's a, not a totally apt summary of it, but, but that was hugely influential. And that gave me certain tools to literally, in a way it was a double-edged sword because the more awareness I got, the more I realized how fucked up I was, like how many jigsaw pieces there were. Like I might've thought it was a hundred piece puzzle on maybe like three different planes, but then realizing it was like a 30,000 piece jigsaw puzzle that I've, not only were there normal pieces, but I took those individual pieces and then cut each of those pieces up randomly, you know, scissors and razors into like eight pieces each, you know? So not only did I have to put the puzzle together, I had to put pieces of each piece together before even putting the puzzle together. It sounds like a crazy metaphor, but that was kind of like the internal experience of it. And in so kind of do go back to that car metaphor, somebody having to learn how to put a car back together without having any idea what a fucking car even is. So that hugely informed my work. And as I was kind of putting myself back together, you know, I mean, literally a lot of my days consisted of, and this is before massage school, a lot of my days consisted of laying in bed or just standing or just sitting or lying there for eight, nine, 10, 12 hours at a time. And just like neuron by neuron, trying to reprogram and reset like, initiation part of my movement and the resting default of my movement feeling where things are tense and it was horrifying because when i close my eyes all i see is this just this mass confusion just that jigsaw puzzle all over the place and these different levels and stuff but basically just trying to put myself back together piece by piece by piece by neuron by neuron and making so many mistakes and the same mistakes along the way 
but that's essentially what I've been doing for the past 20 years, actually, starting to layer on the academic understanding and being naturally disposed to being a geek where I am able to take that information on quite well in terms of anatomy and physiology and and you know which is why i'm able to spout off all the technical terms to you you know you know every muscle and attachment and the mechanics of of all that stuff as well and so i think that's a big part of what makes my work so unique is the synergy i think between this kind of direct experiential insight this constant research laboratory and this neuromechanical process as well as kind of knowledge understanding of the body and the kind of connective tissue muscles tendon bone levers vectors angles interrelate and i only think interrelationally again it's authentic because of my experience of realizing to think only locally is oftentimes not only not productive but counterproductive right? and that's why it's so important to me and authentic for me is because of my own experience of having torn myself apart from the inside i always want to start comprehensively first buckminster fuller thing it's like at the outset, start comprehensively, and you can only really understand any part optimally in its relationship, not only to every other part, but to the whole perpetually. So you start there, and then you really want to work with, quote unquote, each part with respect to the global ecology, right? Because you can very much tug on a particular part, again, like I did to myself at the expense of the global ecology. So that's hugely, so obviously that hugely informed my work with that direct experiential insight, and then to be able to add on. The actual language around you know being able to talk about the continuous fascial relationship between the tibialis anterior and the peroneus longus stirrup going to the head of the fibula which is continuous with that hamstrings biceps femoris going into the sacro tuberous ligament continuous to the si ligament up through the erectus over top of the gallia aponeurotica you know it's one continuous web like being able to talk shit like that and actually know that stuff and later on with the experience i think that synergy is what creates the greatest possibility for for expansion for healing and stuff both as a both as a, a body worker and as a teacher so yeah so i would say one of the things that was not great for me when i got to that rolfing series is even though it gave me a lot of body awareness my rolfer was not a very good educator and that's a huge piece of why i spend time with my clients like you know to the degree where i feel like they can absorb it but I think the information part of, of what I offer and the education part of what I offer goes, again, synergizes hand in hand with the actual freedom and, and freedom of restrictions and movement and optimizing the biomechanics and stuff is. But how we relate to our bodies, how we relate to not this as a machine, you know, and I'm constantly, you know, emphasizing the, the neural aspects of it as well. Again, all this comes from now you understand from a deeply authentic place of, of experience Again, layer on the, the academic stuff with that so basically that's how i got into the work and it's always been filtered through through this overwhelming like every ce class i've taught or taken and other modalities i've taken neuromuscular stuff biodynamic craniosacral certification reflexology certification you know structural work every kind of modality that there is but it's always been filtered through this overall blee filter of like i perceive things me being my cutesy, phonetically pleasing nickname. It's just my first initial and last name. But it works. So the blue style of, of body work is definitely comes from that, that direct experience since like starting comprehensively at the outset. And to the degree where I don't even think in terms of parts anymore, like shoulder or hip, as I've discussed with you, I actually, it's going to sound funny, but it's literally working, assessing, feeling, and an interesting way it even comes back to climbing is working with the process and the flow of information itself, not putting any hierarchy in terms of like this, that, or certainly not treating it symptomatically, but like understanding the symptom as a reference point 
And then how do we create the most ease and space for that? Because it might be a shoulder pain, but that shoulder pain might be because it's reacting to a contralateral hitch in the left hip, which might be due to favoring that leg due to a right ankle injury, which might happen because that kid learned how to walk from his dad, who was a war vet, who got shot in the left leg and was limping. And so he mimicked that when he was a kid. You know, it, it can go on and on and on. And that's why it's important not just to treat the symptom or even the local or even the time frame small, but the real artistry and, and the cool interestingness of it happens when you can, again, see it globally. And then I think that's where the biggest efficacy comes in is when you can start to unravel that and see where it needs, where's the highest point of leverage moment to moment this is where it kind of goes back to the climbing. Instead of having any routine or like doing strokes and stuff, um, the way I work now is moment to moment, just like if I'm free soloing, like listening on that deep, deep level where my mind's eye is on not only nine separate parts of the body at the same time, at the whole but the actual process and flow of information that's happening what's tugging on what's reacting to what how much of it is mind how much of it is body how much of it is structure how much of it is neurological tonus how much of it is emotion how much of it is fluid how much of the superficial fascia deep fascia like all these different planes psycho emotional spiritual energetic planes as well um, holding all that like simultaneously and then and then moment to moment like working that flow of information that itself I, I know that sounds a little bit many, but it's actually working now. And again, it comes from such a deeply authentic place from that experience later on with that, that geeky knowledge knowing bit. So yeah, that's, that, that's, that's how I work. And that's how I perceive things is just the wholeness, like facilitating, which is on my business card and stickler for education as well. And a process, you know, one of the, one of the first things that everybody hears from my mouth is there's no finish line, you know, it's about, stopping that downward spiral that people are often on. And, you know, first of all, halting that and starting to create momentum, which is why I set up my practice the way I do in terms of seeing only regular clients. I don't have to just do one-offs and about relaxing on the table for 60 or 90 minutes. It's about getting people to invest in themselves and get committed into their own embodiment in, in the human process. And, and oftentimes that might be putting out fires at the beginning, you know, in terms of getting people out of pain or addressing certain things. But as you've heard me say, at a certain point, it might be years ago since we've addressed pain issues or other acute issues, then it becomes about awesomerizing. Um, and that's not a fancy saying. It's awesome. Like as an awesome, you're awesome and mm -hmm. rising it. So getting more awesome this is the fun part. How to become more integrated, more whole as the body and mind becomes a resource that creates that space and expansion ability towards like thriving, towards becoming more towards who you are-ness and embodying yourself and getting to know yourself and, and becoming aware and where that whole system becomes a resource versus oftentimes a subconscious psychological drain on people they don't even know it because they're holding tension and strains and stresses in their body that are literally sapping their life force you know from them whether to big degrees or to small degrees but even those small degrees you know if you can mitigate that three percent you know that adds up over hours and weeks and months and years you know so and then as you've heard me say how do we get people engaged in an upward spiral right so about not a goal-oriented, which we're so are in this society, and I think they're very important markers, but how do you orient overall in terms of being process-oriented and getting people engaged in that process? And another thing I say often in my practice is change hurts. Good change, which is healing, is oftentimes very uncomfortable along the way. It's not a pleasant, healing's not a pleasant thing usually, you know? It doesn't feel good 
along the way. I think that's why a lot of people don't do it. They just stay status quo or distracted or covered up or just kind of cruise along with it and are more on a downward, slowly downward spiraling process. But yeah, good change, healing. It hurts and it takes a lot of courage and commitment in a way and and starting that upward spiral. The cool part is, is once you kind of get to cruising speed and cruising altitude and get to that awesomerizing process, it's really fascinating to witness, like to both help as a team and facilitate and witness people thriving when all of a sudden that energy in the system is freed up when they have the psycho-emotional buoy and resources. You know, not only does the body become a suck, but it actually becomes a, a wellspring. Then to see, having witnessed some of, yeah, what might, my clients kind of have expanded over the years, like from being completely debilitating and homebound to, yeah, it's pretty incredible. It's been a pretty incredible process to, to witness that and, and kind of validating in terms of like the kind of approach of working that way. And I don't, I don't like to even say healer or as you know, as well, anytime people call me and say, Oh my God, you fixed me. You healed me. It's like, I always take that as an opportunity to have that conversation of, uh, I want to empower my clients to take responsibility for their own health. I can help an awful lot. I can remove restrictions, obstructions, and do some crazy ass voodoo shit that I personally don't know anybody else does. Basically because I base my work off of what I wish somebody could have helped me with and still do. <laughs> and of all the people I've seen, I haven't ever been able to find it. So in a way I get to embody that and, and help other people at least, which does help me in a way, but I won't lie. If I could have, if I could have found me, I probably could have saved myself 15 years of grief. You know, but it's also those 15 years of grief that has given me the tools to help people in the way I'm able to help in such a unique way. I would have chosen the former <laughs> if I had a choice. That's how it's based off that. And, and it continues to evolve because the reason I like to say there's no finish line is because ultimately the very idea of the finish line eventually creates more suffering in the end. I've noticed for myself and I've noticed it in my clients. And what I mean by finish line is like the sense of, oh, once my shoulder to this point, I'm going to fucking sprout butterfly wings and fly off into the sunset. We create expectations, right? These eternal expectations. And hope. Hope is generally a, a good thing, but hope can be dangerous as well when those hopes get crushed because they're not sustainable expectations, right? So we think, oh, once this, then this, right? But the body, being human just doesn't work that way. But in the end, there's nowhere to get to finish line because, again, that, that idea usually yields more suffering in, in, the, in the experience than, than being helpful. So yeah, so those are a couple of my mantras in practice. So do you have like a motto or a quote that you hold on to? One of the, you know, it's a very popular one. It's one I've always resonated with because I think it works on a few different fronts. Uh, good old Gandhi quote, be the change you want to see in the world. Very pity, several words. And like anything, again, this is what I like about Einstein is to me, elegance is something that is simple but infinitely expansive, right? Like, seems simple enough. E equals MC squared. That to me is a model of elegance, right? It's, I mean, that's a simple fucking equation. It's the equivalence of mass and energy, you know, light. Like, light speed, mass, energy, and just the implications of that equivalence, you know, nuclear bombs, nuclear factories, freaking it's crazy. It's just such a simple equation, but it's infinitely expansive in its implications, right? So, that model of elegance, I think that Gandhi quote is very elegant to be the change you want to see in the world because not only does it help combat dispositions like mine, where my inclination when I open my eyes is to see the cruelty in the world 
and the inequities and, and the injustices and the social injustices and the greed and the hatred and the bullshit and the nuisance people nuisance and I'm first in line of that nuisance people and just fuck you fuck it all fuck everything helps to combat that by like instead you get it turn that and be like oh these are all these things that you have to stave off despair on a daily level if you don't like these things instead of falling into despair how can you then embody like what it means you wish the world anytime i say oh i wish i wish the world was less cruel i wish the world were more just i wish the world were more generous i wish the world were more compassionate you know all these kind of things not only does it help to stay out off but it gives a compass in terms of how you want to embody your own life so the best way to kind of change the world instead of trying to change trump directly which you know you're hard, hard pressed to do is to embody that change in yourself instead of like being like, Oh, the world's not like this. And fuck, I wish it were. And instead I'm just going to wallow in despair, which is certainly might want to do. But based on that saying, it gives you some modicum of empowerment. It's an empowering quote in that you get to embody those changes that you wish to see in the world. And in so doing you change the world. It's the most, the most direct ways I know of actually making a change in the world is changing your own, relationship to it and to yourself and being able to embody those authentic qualities that you wish to to see in the world because to me it's that flavor of authenticity it doesn't matter what the content is it's the actual flavor of authenticity itself that has that has an unsubstitutable power that i think is really important that's why compassion is so important to me because this whole being an embodied human being thing and this you know showed up in skin as these like separate individuated entities in the world in this linear field of time trippy experience again it's it's not a particularly, it is a particularly uncomfortable experience. It's a struggle for me daily. I really appreciate the time you took to go into detail and really talk about your journey and, you know, from drug addiction to going into body work and where your passion lies and where it comes from. I feel like there are so many lessons in this podcast that it's, it's going to be hard for me to edit everything out, but I'm hoping the audience gets through the whole thing and, and get something from it, can learn something. Oh, really, thank you again, Benjamin. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for tuning in to the sixth episode of the Yes Vision podcast. We hope you found his journey as inspiring and insightful as we have. Feel free to connect with us on Instagram at the Yes Vision podcast for more inspiring stories from real people.